we're excited to share that the following offer has been extended through the end of the week. We hope you become a member today. Tuesday, February 28th marks one year since we launched the DSR Daily Brief. We're showing our thanks by providing you with our best sale price ever on membership. From now through March 4th, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code daily brief to receive 50% off our regular membership price of $50 per year or $5 per month. Members receive access to bonus content, an ad-free listening experience, exclusive blog posts, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. This is a one-time only offer, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DAILYBRIEF to receive 50% off. Thank you for your support. Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as a senior correspondent at Yahoo News. And this is actually our inaugural episode of Foreign Office as we have just joined the Deep State Radio Network. Very excited to be here. Um, I've been a longtime guest of David Rothkopf's podcast, and given his national security bent and the panoply of interesting shows that he has in his network, we need to deal with them just last week to be part of Deep State Radio. So you're, you're now listening to, I don't know what you would even call this uh, in, in podcast land. It's not syndicated, but we're, we're now horizontally integrated, vertically integrated. I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's great to be back here. And um, my guest this week is somebody who caught my eye on Twitter. I mean, I've, I've followed his work for a while, but I am a, a glutton for people who range against the emerging conventional wisdom and go at a 45 degree angle to the kind of prevailing media narrative of the day. And uh, Mikola Vieleskov is a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Strategic Studies, which is a Ukrainian government funded think tank. He's also a senior analyst at the NGO Come Back Alive. And the reason I invited Mikola on the show is he did a very interesting set of tweets pushing back against this notion that Ukraine is sleepwalking into folly with respect to the ongoing defense of the city of Bakhmut. This is something I've written about. I've, I've tweeted about it and all that. But, uh, you know, you've seen in the last several weeks, the Washington Post did a, an interview with a battalion commander who was utterly full of grievance and recrimination, thinking his government was making a huge mistake, squandering too many Ukrainian lives and resources for the sake of this non-strategic city and that this, this adventure would uh, essentially deplete Ukraine's ability to mount its forthcoming counteroffensive in spring. And maybe Bigala, you had a, a, a pushback to this notion that the Zelensky administration and the general staff and Commander Zaluzhny, that they're all making a huge mistake. I, I, let's talk a little bit before we get into why you believe that is so. But, you know, the, the Battle of Bakhmut has been raging now for, what, nine months, maybe, maybe even longer? The Russians have made incremental gains and in, in some progress, although they still to this day have failed to completely encircle the city. Depending on whom you're consulting, if it's Russian military blo- bloggers, if it's Yevgeny Prigozhin on Telegram, they're running out of ammunition, they're not being properly regenerated in the ranks, their resources are, are few, and yet they have expended so much firepower and so much manpower and energy to try and take this city. Why are the Russians throwing everything they have into Bakhmut? Let's start there. Well, the importance of Bakhmut can be explained from the number of perspectives, from the number of angles. So if we look at from the standpoint of geography, after 
the zoom salient was reduced. The salient that was hanging from the northwest around the Slavyansk-Kramatorsk agglomeration, there is no other way for Russians to attain the goals they declared to take full control of the Donetsk region then go directly through Bakhmut. Bakhmut now is a gateway to other major settlements, other major urban areas like uh, Konstantinivka, like Drushkivka, and of course, uh, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk. So from the geostrategy or just uh, geographical point, point of view, perspective, it's, it's a gateway. And for Russians, there is no other way, basically, after successful Ukrainian counteroffensive in uh, Kharkiv region. But of course, if we are talking about strategic implication of the fighting of uh, Bakhmut, I agree with the general framing that strategically the fighting is most important, not because it's a gateway for other settlement, but uh, as to the question, who is treating whom? That's an uh, open question, I would say. Who is treating whom? Because uh, we are in a process that is ongoing, that is developing, and uh, we can make a definite conclusion only as a result of 2022 campaign. As for me, to this question. So that's uh, the importance of the, of the Bakhmut. And uh, you, you, you do such a generous introduction. I maybe provide some caveats. I'm also asking myself question what we are doing, whether we're doing it right or wrong. But I, the scene that I don't agree is uh, the framing, for instance, that Ukraine should just withdraw from Bakhmut. I don't uh, subscribe to this logic because uh, this logic is, as for me, groundless. The problem is not uh, this is that position we control. The problem is that Russians have grouping of forces. They are ready to sacrifice these people no matter the price they want to advance. So it might, uh, if it's not Bakhmut, for instance, it might have been other Ukrainian settlement in Donetsk region or maybe Lugansk region. So it's not the issue of uh, whether we should fight or not. Luckily, we moved past to this point because maybe for months and a half, two months ago, the whole debate was about whether at all Ukraine should fight around Bakhmut. Now at least people are discussing the issue how Ukraine should fight, whether it should fight the way it is done now inside Bakhmut or whether it should withdraw. So that's one of the scenes that I criticize constantly. I mean, this whole debate. And another scene that uh, I didn't buy at all, uh, it's very difficult to read calmly this, uh, this um, uh, headline that Ukraine is uh, consuming a lot of armor while defending Bakhmut. Because uh, as for me, people, they still don't understand that, some people, I mean, at least, that we don't have this luxury of like just uh, concentrating 100% of on preparing on counteroffensive. So we need to simultaneously arrest Russian advances in not only Bakhmut, but alone five major excesses of advance, Bakhmut being the major one, but simultaneously prepare for counteroffensive. And we don't have this luxury. We need to do it simultaneously. And uh, it's it's very tricky scene. It's very difficult scene to accomplish. And we are somehow managing it. And this this whole framing, parts of it, of it, uh, the reasons why I, from time to time, criticize this as that headline. Right. And I mean, you know, what I found fascinating about this debate so as you know, I mean, the, the, the reporting that's come out, not just from Western sources, but Ukrainian news organizations was for many months, there was a division between Zelensky and Yermak, his advisor on the one hand, and Commander-in-Chief Zaluzhny on the other about the wisdom, strategic wisdom of throwing so much into keeping Bakhmut. It was suggested that Zaluzhny at one point was, was advocating a withdrawal to take the resources and put them elsewhere along the front. However, 
when I started digging into this, uh, sources I have in Ukrainian military intelligence said, actually, no, there is consensus at the general staff level and the very upper echelons of the government that this is a city worth defending and that we are capable of not only holding it, but pushing the Russians back. And now you see Zaluzhny himself going out and sort of doing the strategic communications and, and being the one to advocate this policy. And I was told, and I, again, I'm running this by you to see if it, it tracks with your own assessment and your own reporting. I was told that unlike Severodonetsk, where there was a debate, you know, there was a division within about should we stay, should we go? And then ultimately, of course, they withdrew. There is no debate anymore about Bakhmut. Everyone is in agreement. So it's either the Ukrainians are unanimously sleepwalking into their own disaster, or perhaps maybe they know something that we don't about how to fight the Russians and what's needed. And I mean, the point you make that you don't have the luxury of deciding, you know, that we're just going to focus exclusively on a counteroffensive and take our finger out of the dike of here, here, and here and allow the Russians to pour in. This is something I keep hearing a lot of. And the other argument being that just because you're, you're, you're zooming in on one locus on, on the battlefield, um, one city, doesn't give you the broad picture of what's taking place all along the contact line elsewhere, right? So perhaps the Russians are withdrawing forces from other places along the front, sending them to Bakhmut, which is going to make it easier for the Ukrainians to press ahead, I don't know, in the southeast in the coming weeks. I mean, is this track with your, your take of the situation? Yeah, there were conflicting uh, reports, different reports about uh, this is that official approach without getting into detail because I'm not privy for these discussions. And if I were, I won't allow... Uh, you wouldn't tell me yeah, anyway, yeah, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I think everybody in Ukraine would subscribe to the idea that it's not about Bakhmut or any other location. So since Russians are ready to sacrifice as much manpower as possible since they are ready to accept such losses. So it, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's Bakhmut or some, something to the west of Bakhmut. We need to forcefully confront them. Also, this rationale provided recently that if Russians are so eager to take control of Bakhmut, we might try to attract Wagner private military company. As for me, this logic is also quite sound because uh, zero resources, zero reserves are not limitless. And indeed, Wagner Military Company demonstrated the biggest uh, potential of adaptability. Yeah, we, we, uh, we see that uh, zero newly tactics, I, I'm not sure whether it can be applicable to the whole front to produce results, but still it's working. And if it's working, it needs to be arrested here. So we need to treat uh, deformations that prove to be most adaptable. And uh, the ones that can produce results, yeah, very incrementally with uh, a lot of losses incurred, but still, they adjusted. And uh, if this opportunity opened, we need to treat them as much as possible. And by this, to stabilize frontline here and now, and also to gain as much precious time to prepare uh, reserves, uh, personnel, material for counteroffensive. So I think this is a point everybody would subscribe, like Zelensky, Sirsky, Zaluzhny. And others, as to the general situation, yeah, you, you're right in one perspective that we need to look at the, at the front line in general, not only on the Bakhmut. And if we look at the front line in general, we can see that it's a kind of conflict in reports, reports that create very, very interesting picture, contradictory picture. Because uh, on the one hand, Russians are slowly advancing on the flanks of Bakhmut, but at the same time, they're not successful at all, like in piercing Ukrainian defenses in Vuhledar, around Kupyansk, in Leman direction and others. 
So it means that the situation is, is not that bad. And despite some incremental advances, we are absorbing Russian strikes in other directions quite successfully and uh, are treating Russian, Russian offensive that started at the end of January, the beginning of February. And uh, maybe indeed we are repeating the situations that was in summer 2022 when we uh, treated Russians to that extent that it created opening for counteroffensives, active actions on the extreme flanks of the Russian front line. One of the things that we all have to deal with is the Ukrainian government does not disclose its own casualties, right? At best, you get sort of bits and bobs of information from private briefings or whatnot. I mean, the, the last figure I had heard, and this was now almost a month ago, was it's a four to one ratio. So the Russians lose and, and casualties, meaning not, not fatalities necessarily. So the Russians have suffered four casualties for every one Ukrainian casualty. And figures that were being thrown around to me were kind of shocking, but then on the other hand, not so shocking in light of what has come to light and what has been reported in the open source. So, you know, 40,000 Russian slash Wagner casualties per month versus 10. And usually wounded in action on the Russian side, if, if it's severe enough of a wound, they're going to die because they don't have medical intervention the way the Ukrainians do, et cetera, et cetera. But these are, these are shocking, staggering numbers. And yet one of the, the counter arguments of Ukraine's sort of optimistic future, or good fortune, if you like, is the Russians have limitless resources in terms of raw manpower. They will mobilize, they're emptying prisons, they're throwing just raw meat into the grinder. And Putin clearly has no design to, to stop anytime soon. Whereas with Ukraine, it is true, you have already sacrificed some of the best and brightest of your generation. People who volunteered immediately, who were very patriotic, who, who went to fight. And, you know, it is a challenge to keep training up new cadres of soldiers who are going to be as battle-tested and, and capable. And, and, and they, they simply won't be by dint of time, right? They, they will not have been at the front for that long. Do you think that the current plan of action for, as you say, bringing in reserves and, you know, obviously we've got Ukrainian soldiers being trained up in the U.S. and the U.K. on main battle tank systems coming from NATO. Allegedly now at least two Ukrainian pilots are being tested in some manner or another with respect to F-16s. So the, the West is doing quite a lot to help in terms of not just security assistance, but allowing military absorption to be as speedy as possible. But does Ukraine have the competent and capable manpower to A, mount this counteroffensive in the spring, and B, more importantly, the president's own goals, you know, push the Russians out of all occupied territory. Are you optimistic that this is a feasible situation? Well, let me start from the second part of your question. I'm optimistic with regard to the chances of one major offensive, but at the same time, if you look, maybe somebody can Google what I've written, and I've written a piece for Jamestown Foundation, Eurasia Daily Monitor, at the end of the last year. They asked me to provide some Ukrainian perspective. And back at the time, I said to them that given the configuration of frontline, it's a quite a lengthy crescent. Yes, with shallow depths in some places, but it's a quite a lengthy uh, crescent. Uh, so it would be quite difficult to do it with one major operation. So the, the configuration of the frontline is not ripe for like just one ma major envelopment, maybe to liberate whole territories. So for sure... We are not going to liberate uh, like 17 and 80 percent of, of temporary lost Ukrainian territories with one counteroffensive with weaponry we were promised back in January 2023 or armor just recently promised. 
But uh, even if we would be successful in uh, recovering some chunks of Ukrainian territory, like uh, Zaporizhia and Kherson region, it would be a major strategic coup because it would uh, disapprove this uh, new consensus, I would say, consensus by default that uh, it would be quite difficult for Ukraine to do a major offensive given the shortened front line, given that the proportion of the forces to the shortened front, front line is greater than in summer 2022. So uh, despite the fact that we won't be able to liberate uh, all the territories with one strike, one major operation, it still would produce, as for me, major strategic results. Uh, and uh, who knows, the, the strategy is non-linear scenes. And we, we don't know what uh, result might be uh, like in internal Russian politics after another Ukrainian successful action. Nobody knows it. And uh, history is ripe with different scenarios when country was ready to negotiate uh, peace uh, despite being on a territory of uh, the subject of the aggressor aggression so that's that's different scenarios and uh, as to the first question uh, part of the question with regards to whether we have enough uh, of uh, capable uh, troops and soldiers i would say that we have a trump card and it's trump card that training programs that undergo in all, all over the europe not russia doesn't have anything comparable with it and uh, that's why even despite the losses we incurred and it's it's true and uh, it caused the unevenness in the combat performance we currently see so ukraine is capable both withstanding attacks on some axes and on the other axes uh, it's not that successful the front is slowly moving on but despite this we have this major training program and i think it's uh, compensating for Ukrainian losses, uh, and that is precisely why some of our troops are gaining precious times for other of their comrades to get to know how to be successful in modern combined armed warfare. And, you know, Ukrainian counteroffensives uh, and, and the reclaiming of occupied land is important not only in itself, but as you know, the West's attention begins to wane. News moves on. Americans, while well, still largely in, in a majority are, are pro-Ukrainian and pro-security assistance for Ukraine, the longer things appear to be a, the so-called stalemate or war of attrition without any major movement, preferably from the Ukrainian side into the Russian side, the harder it will be to ask for things such as fighter jets and even to sustain the current level of support, particularly in a Congress where you have a vanguard of a one party essentially saying we shouldn't be giving Ukraine anything. We don't know where the money's going, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, a, also a, a diplomatic and international relations emphasis on ensuring that the spring counteroffensive is going to be successful. We don't even know where exactly it's going to take place, right? I mean, we, we all have guesses as to what Commander-in-Chief Zaluzhny is, is cooking up, but the Ukrainians are very good at OPSEC. They don't share their plans in advance because... They know even if they shared them fully with the Americans, it would wind up on the front page of the New York Times, which the Russians are all too able to read, right? But it does seem like this is, there is something major in the offing. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's going to happen within the next few weeks if you listen to military I'm not sure about next few weeks. I mean, I'm uh, more about like the end of the second quarter, why I'm not sure because the pledges of weaponry like armor, like artillery, they were done only in January and the uh, time is needed to prepare people for them to master this kind of equipment. And also, we only recently saw this report that EU is ready to donate some uh, artillery armor because 
A lot of people, as for me, are concentrating on the armor part of the equation, forgetting about artillery part of the equation that is as important as uh, armor uh, side of the equation. As to the directions, well, of course we can speculate and it is left uh, to highest military command to decide, but uh, frontline shortened. And uh, there is only three major directions like south, like Donbass area, and also northern Luhansk region. And uh, there is less of avenues and uh, it makes easier for to, to think about it, but also it's... Uh, more easier for Russians to predict a possible Ukrainian course of action. And we saw from the reports that they are doing a lot of defense in depth, engineering work. They are especially fearful about the southern drive. They understand that if Ukraine is successful of liberating Zaporizhia and the Kherson region fully, it would be a major strategic hit uh, for Ukraine, major strategic accomplishment. You are right that we need to sustain this po- positive dynamics, as I said. So accomplishments on the front line, they intensify new assistance and create opening for new for new accomplishments on the front line. But if you're looking about long term after, for instance, successful Ukrainian offensive, after it, I think we'll saw some pause in the fighting because uh, this fighting in the last year, it made clear that both sides are successful of um, getting new resources uh, to sustain fighting, but uh, not getting enough resources to overcome resistance radically. And uh, on the other hand, uh, both sides, we, we have difficulties of quickly regenerating our losses. And uh, for obvious reasons, not only Russian military industrial complex is having the problems like uh, doing a major mobilization. We, we also recently saw a lot of reports that Western military industrial complex is also facing a major obstacles in quickly producing production. So even if uh, Ukraine is successful, we hope so. I think uh, that after this uh, episode, after 2023 campaign, we see some pause in the fighting. But it's not uh, the reason to to, to be idle because uh, I don't believe that uh, the Russian regime would uh, quickly transform itself. There would be new identity like accepting Ukrainian independence as a fait accompli. So we need to to prepare for the next rounds. We need to use to the fullest possible extent this time we gained. I mean, Ukrainian nation gained to regenerate this mobilization capacity of Western military industrial complex. So that's my my vision beyond the talk about uh, upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you've seen just at the weekend there was a um, a Ukrainian strike in Crimea, which uh, according to Ukrainian military intelligence took out a weapons transfer of caliber, Russian caliber cruise missiles. And Crimea has been also a, a hot button issue in the West in terms of, well, not only can Ukraine actually, if not fully liberate the peninsula, can they make life so unpleasant for the Russians there? Can they neutralize the Russian military presence there? And also more important, should they, right? I mean, there seems to have been some shifting logic in the Biden administration that Crimea should be off limits. In other words, we will not help them. We will not share intelligence. We will not give them resources or certainly artillery systems that could strike deep into the heart of what Russia has occupied for the last nine years. But now it seems that logic has begun to disintegrate. And indeed, I mean, almost every week or every two weeks, there's some kind of kinetic activity happening in Crimea, whether it's drone strikes or with Saki Air Base, according to Commander's Illusion, it was missiles. Do you see this prospect? It's very hard in the West to um, often distinguish between 
Ukrainian self-confidence, perhaps hubris and actual capability. But the idea that Ukraine could potentially liberate not just territory occupied as of February 24, 2022, the territory that had been taken and occupied in 2014, once seemed very fanciful, but now perhaps not so much. Uh, how do you rate this prospect of possibly kicking more of the Russian Black Fleet out of Sevastopol and, and making Crimea essentially a no-go zone for, for Russian military activity? Uh, first of all, of course, we need to liberate uh, mainland southern Ukraine. And if we are successful, of course, it would create opening for the next stage when Ukraine can combine not only military instruments, but also diplomacy, but also different public perception. Because as for me, the most important progress with regards to Crimea is uh, the progress in uh, people perception. Because uh, before 24th of February 2022, uh, let's be honest, but most people uh, treated Crimea as a as a settled issue. So nobody was, was ready to invest in liberation of Crimea. Everybody ex- accepted it as a Russian territory and nobody was questioning Russian de facto control of the Crimea. But 2022 made clear that uh, in 2013, people made a major mistake when they turned a blind eye on Crimea situation when Russia quickly seized Crimea and everybody Indeed, uh, saw the evidence that when U- Ukraine's when Ukraine pleaded, provided arguments that occupation of Crimea is a major threat for the international security. It's not a mere words. That's true because Crimea bo- both was a staging ground for land part of the aggression when Russian boats strike toward Mykolaiv and uh, even to Odessa attempts, and on the other hand, strike toward uh, Mariupol, and at the same time. Uh, Crimea as a staging ground for naval blockade. So as for me, the most important thing, people understood that without uh, Ukraine regaining Crimea, there won't be long-term peace and security. And uh, the most uh, ambitious statement was made by, as far as I remember, number three in State Department, Victoria Nuland, that uh, admitted recently that Crimea need to be demilitarized, at least for Ukraine to be to be secure. So that's the most important scene as for me, not uh, even the state of the affair at the front line, but this discussion ongoing and people understanding the stakes with regards to Crimea. It's uh, it's a huge opening for, for Ukraine to make a case and to create great grounds. As to uh, retaking Crimea, well, people from Ukraine, I mean, like president, like uh, head of my intelligence director, they admitted that we are quite flexible. We can combine both military instruments and diplomatic instruments. And with it, uh, regain Crimea. The most important thing is this change in psychology. And uh, people indeed saw that the stakes are high when Crimea issue is in question. I'm sure you saw this Putin's visit to Mariupol. I, I know there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. It wasn't him. It was his body double or, or whatnot. But it does look like there was some kind of publicity stunt there. Um, I've had guests on the show who say, because I, I, I like to ask, we, we talk too much about Putin's red lines in terms of weapons, packages, and so on, but what would be his quote-unquote red line in terms of loss of territory in Ukraine? And a lot of people have alighted on the idea that, well, given how much energy was expended to take Mariupol and how much they're now trying to turn it into this kind of Potemkin showcase of Russian occupation, Ru- Russian annexation, should Mariupol fall under threat of falling back into Ukrainian hands, this would be uh, sort of a 
a bridge too far for Putin. How do you rate, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to assess your enemy's thinking and, and sort of their, their disposition on things. How do you rate some of these arguments? Do you think that Putin could, in effect, lose all of Ukraine, meaning be, have his forces pushed out of the vast majority of territory they currently occupy and simply shrug your shoulders and change the channel, as it were, and, and, and internally for the Russian population? Or do you think that that would just aggravate him to the point of even trying to do something more provocative, more escalatory? I mean, obviously, in the, in the West, we worry about the use of WMD, tactical nukes, whatever. He seems to have been talked out of that, going down that road, not just by the Americans, but the Chinese and the Indians. But is this a, a, a potentiality? Because I know many Ukrainians were worried to the point of saying it was inevitable that he will eventually drop some massive bomb on the country and we just have to prepare for such a contingency. Do you, do you agree with that or do you think he's more of a paper tiger than he might seem? Well, with regards to Ukrainian perception, I would say that we're in a situation when indeed we need to take uh, seriously any kind of contingency, but Ukrainians are not fearful. And I'll explain you why to you, because if you look at the level of destruction, like uh, not only in Mariupol, but in Marienka, for instance, you can see uh, the results of destructions that are comparable to the use of like tactical nuke. So for, for to a certain extent, uh, there is already no difference between the results of uh, like conventional application uh, conventional forces application and tactical nukes employment. There is no difference at all. Now, with regards to strategic nukes, uh, well, again, this uh, whole uh, escalation dominance, it works when uh, Russia is uh, trying to, to drive ideas that either you step back or your very existence put into question. But it doesn't work in case of Ukrainians. Because uh, Russia, with conventional means, they already uh, threaten Ukraine to the fullest possible extent in terms of existence. So in case of Ukraine, uh, neither minor nuclear escalation nor major nuclear escalation doesn't work. And we clearly demonstrated first liberating uh, Leman and then right bank of Dnipro. So we demonstrate that all these threats are bogus one. And as for me, they were just used uh, to gain some time to, for, to see the results of mobilization. So he was compensating for the point of extreme conventional weakness uh, and trying to gain just uh, some time. Uh, he gained it, and uh, there is no need for this unconventional uh, escalation threat. As uh, to his red lines, alas, uh, since we already touched upon this whole scene, Alas, it's working to some extent uh, as this debate is ongoing and there are some limits to the assistance uh, U.S. and other countries are providing to Ukraine. Alas, it's working, but uh, as for me, uh, there is uh, less of uh, nu nukes threatening right now because uh, Putin understood clearly the limits of utility of such an escalation. Uh, threats, especially when even India and China clearly demonstrated, did a public statement that uh, we are sorry, but breaching nuclear taboo is non-starter. And uh, I think Putin uh, understood it. And uh, after a warrant was issued for him by the International Criminal Court, it's also a good signal for all of his uh, servants that you shall be very careful about orders you co uh, you comply, you observe, and. Uh, you also might be a criminal and uh, you also might be uh, might be called for for some responsibility for what you do so i, I think uh, this uh, all threats they are bogus but alas they are working as 
red lines, well, uh, in case of mainland Ukraine, there is nothing that is re- red line for him. But in case of Crimea, he's also doing everything in his power to create the proper impression and alas, it is working in, in some quarters of the Western policymaking. Not in case of Ukraine, but in Western policymaking. I, but, and I, I don't know how to remedy the situation, how to, to, to show people that there is nothing to fear ex- except fear itself. What tends to happen is the Ukrainians do something, they go off script, as it were. Strikes into Belgorod, including those using harm anti-radiation missiles, which have been recovered in Russian territory. When the Ukrainians mount some bold and successful operation, whether with drone strikes, missile strikes, or the insertion of special forces units, the West kind of gets all nervous, but then it waits for the reaction, which never comes. Remember, Saki Air Base didn't happen, according to the Russian government. It was an industrial accident, a smoking accident or whatever. And this just adds another data point to the pile that, as you were saying, part of the strategic playbook from the Russian side is to thunder and grumble and make all of these dire catastrophic threats. We're going to, you know, nuke London and march on Berlin and all these things. But really, that's that's an information exercise. That's just going to shape the the thinking of, of the West in terms of how far they're willing to go to help Ukraine. But it does seem like we keep hit, hitting these dam break moments, right? I mean, even just last week, the announcement that Poland and Slovakia are providing MiG-29s to Ukraine, we don't even know the number of airframes they're giving because it's, it's not very transparent, but it, it seems to me at least two squadrons worth. That's the first time the collective West has agreed to provide fighter jets to Ukraine. I mean, you remember this debate at the beginning of the war about MiG-29s from Poland and it all went sideways. So that we've reached yet another dam break moment where suddenly the West is giving air power to Ukraine. It's Soviet air, air power, but nonetheless, it does seem like he's, he's losing this sort of bully pulpit to some extent. People are not buying his bullshit anymore. They're not listening as acutely when he makes these, you know, dire threats. And, and the more he takes it on, on the chin, or I should actually, the metaphor should be the more we bloody his nose and he simply walks away, the more we're convinced that, okay, Maybe a lot of this is just bluster, but it, it is a very difficult thing in the West because those of us who either grew up in the Cold War under the shadow of a nuclear Armageddon can remember this. There's a nostalgia to it, not a very pleasant one. And those of us who didn't, he's proven himself as a dictator to be very, shall we say, pro-risk or, or very, uh, you know, not risk averse in his calculations. And we continue to have these arguments in the West. Is, is Putin lost his mind? Is he dying of some wasting disease? Is he taking drugs for something? What if he did something really unreasonable? But it doesn't seem like Ukrainians at all care. Or, or you know, it's just you have a job to do, which is press on. We and don't have this luxury country. to be fearful. But that's uh, yeah. to the scene you mentioned. Well, as for me, the major marker that uh, West is no longer deterred would be the shipment of attackers. Because uh, this the most contentious issue, and uh, this whole debate is centered about like attacks, whether it used against some sites in Crimea, and whether it would be legitimate reason for for Russia to breach nuclear escalation risk, nuclear taboo. And uh, I can say that uh, Putin is quite good uh, to know with whom he's playing, and he understands that escalation management risk consideration is a scene that can, he can manipulate and manipulate quite successfully. And uh, I would say that uh, nuclear escalation threat is the most potent instrument in his arsenal, not even his army. But uh, this is most important scene because it either delayed the shipment of proper, proper weaponry or limit the scope 
or put some systems out of reach of Ukrainians. And that's why some opportunities were miss, missed. And uh, that's as a reason this war is still ongoing. That's why he is quite good to know that some bureaucrats in US government, they would uh, follow the logic of nu- nuclear uh, management and escalation management. And he can play it. Uh, but still, we see some progress because, uh, like in summer 2022, for US government to say that we are going to ship weaponry for Ukraine to liberate its territories, it was a non-starter. Now people are admitting it. So that it means that uh, the limits of possible, they are moving and they are moving in Ukrainian favor. To bring the conversation back around to where we started, which was uh, Bakhmut and and the wisdom or lack thereof of holding the city. It, it does seem that, that the tide is beginning to shift slightly in Ukraine's favor. Uh, Russian attempts to fully encircle the city have failed. They have been pushed back, you know, incrementally in the last few weeks. A source that I query all the time, an Estonian military analyst I call Carl, told me he thinks the chances of the city falling are slightly less, quote unquote, than they were a week ago. This is yet another instance, and, and by no means has Bakhmut's fate been written here, but if, if things move in the current trajectory. This is, would be yet another instance where conventional wisdom sort of congeals to say, this is what Ukraine cannot do. The Ukrainians say, well, hang on, we think we can, and then they do it. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the military analytical community is sort of caught off guard or surprised or has a mea culpa moment. Do, do you think that one of the problems, certainly at the policy level, I mean, to your point about strategic escalatory management and, and, you know, the threat of nukes and all that policymaking does derive from projections, right. And, and, and sort of best and worst case scenarios. And it seemed like from the very beginning, Ukraine was written off by the West. You know, you had three days before your capital was going to be sacked. You would, you, you should not be here, Michael, talking to me. You should be in a refugee camp in, in Poland or Romania or something. Do we continue to underestimate Ukrainian resiliency and and resourcefulness is that still a problem kind of encoded in our I don't know policy making framework in the West from your perspective well, as a you Ukrainian can find example in the media I mean this Washington Post report that caused such a, an uproar but as for me people missed the most important scene so despite all the talk a little bit if you will before you push back on that report about what that report was because some of my listeners uh, might not have read the piece well one of the Battalion commanders, he give a list of, of the problems that Ukrainian forces currently have. And, uh, because of this, he gets some criticism from the vertical command. But, uh, as for me, people miss the most important scene. The most important scene, the issue that was mentioned by this battalion commander is that despite all the problems, Ukrainians are still ready to fight. As for me, uh, some quarters in the Western policymaker media, think tanks, they can't uh, understand f- uh, un- under zero assessment, Ukraine might have already need to plead for some truce. And Ukraine, quite well, the opposite. We are saying, please give us weaponry and we continue to do our jobs. It's a kind of perseverance that causes consternation. That That's the problem. And the major uh, idea of this uh, battalion commander with a non-deguerre couple was that despite all problems, we can do fighting. We are ready to fight despite sacrifices. And that's, as for me, uh, this uh, perseverance, uh, this defiance, it caused a kind of discomfort. And uh, implicitly, some people who bent on Ukrainian failure, they they want to see Ukraine fa- fail finally. 
that's one of the problems uh, uh, that people can't reconcile themselves how it can be this way in a period when comfort, consumerism, uh, and, and everything else are the most important things. People are ready to sacrifice their lives uh, and mass for some uh, things like freedom, liberty, very, very vague one, I would say. That's one of the most uh, difficult problems. And yes, you, you're right that in 2022, we defined expectations defied expectations a couple of times. I hope we can do it again. <laughs> well, but uh, to be honest, it would be more more challenging, more taxing for, for Ukraine to do, but uh, chances are quite high for Ukrainian counteroffensive in the second quarter of 2023. Well, let's uh, well, I'll leave it there. I've, we've done our, our 42 minutes here and uh, Mikhail, it was great to have you on. It, it's been a while. Uh, at my fault, I should say, that, that I've had a Ukrainian on to talk about Ukraine. I, I don't like when people who are not from a country kind of expound, sometimes quite arrogantly, about what that country ought to do or what it, what it is capable of doing. So it, it was great to have your perspective. Yeah, let's, uh, let's make a deal that should Bakhmut be fully liberated by Ukrainian defenders, we'll have you back on the program <laughs> to say I told you so. Fair deal. <laughs> Fair deal. Okay. Well, this is uh, Michael Weiss. You've been listening to Foreign Office, my guest this week, uh, Mikola Bieliskov. He is a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Strategic Studies, which is a Ukrainian government-funded think tank. He's also a senior analyst at Comeback Alive. Uh, Mikola, before we leave you, um, just if you want to put a plug in for Comeback Alive, I, I, I know this NGO, it has sort of multifarious organizations, but what is it? And is it something that uh, people in the West who care about Ukraine can, can help? With, yeah, it's by the giving best money way for donating. everybody from abroad who thinks that their government are, are underperforming in terms of the weight uh, of the aid uh, to directly aid Ukraine. It's uh, the oldest functioning organization that is aiding Ukrainian armed forces. It was found back in 2014 when this war started, when it was obvious that uh, assistance is needed. For, to accomplish tasks, and it gained a lot of expertise in terms of aiding armed forces. We are mostly converting donations in things that I would say fall in the category of force multipliers, like uh, communication equipment, like UAVs of different kind, tactical, operational, tactical scale, also some uh, command and control equipment, and also we are providing training. So it's not only just... Uh, uh, given hardware, there is a whole section of the funds that is doing the stuff uh, on the ground, on the ranges. They are uh, transferring skills for troops to be successful of, of utilizing equipment we provide. So that's why we are branding ourselves the fund of qualified assistance. So it's not just converting um, donations into the equipment and also teaching how to use it to the fullest possible extent. And we are the biggest one. With, with fully, being fully transparent, you can find the uh, like weekly reports, monthly reports. Also, we highlight every transfer we do. So any, any person who made a donation can come and see uh, on what his uh, or her donation uh, was translated. Right. And is it, uh, what's the website? So people who listen to the show can check it out. You, you can uh, just uh, write Come Back Alive and uh, you can find. Okay, Mikola, well, it was a pleasure to, to chat to you and uh, be safe. And like I said, we'll, we'll have you back on as, as things at Thanks the front uh, develop. I appreciate your readiness. Anytime. Anytime.